podcast with James and Jane. Hi, this is James. I wanted to let you know that as well as these podcasts, we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that you're welcome to attend wherever you are in the world. You can learn more about them and register for them via our website, www.worldofwork.io. That's www.worldofwork.io. Hello, this is James. And Jane. And here we are again with another episode of the World of Work podcast. Um, A very exciting one for us. We've started to order new equipment and we've got one of the new pieces of equipment here today. Well, strictly speaking, we've got two. Because we've we've got got both a mic and a mic stand. Oh, yes, yes. Well, maybe we've got three. We've got the little like foamy bit that goes over the top as well. Yeah, that's got a name and I can't remember what it is. Yeah, I don't know either. Anyway, it's very exciting for us. So hopefully it sounds a little bit better for people. Um, Today we're going to be following on our series, our series three, which is all about behavior and behavior change. So we've done a lot of work um, and, and conversations earlier that look at things like what behavior change is, things like habituation, motivation, lots of things around individuals and behavior change. What we're going to be doing today is we're going to be speaking a little bit about nudge theory. So nudge theory is like a, it's a popular theory. It's out there. It's had an interesting history. Um, so we're going to be focusing on that. But before we do that, why don't we check in and, and figure out how people can get in touch with us, Jane? What do you think? I think that sounds like a great idea. So as always, we are all over the social. So yeah. you can find us on Insta, Facebook, LinkedIn. Just search The Wow Podcast. But our favorite places to talk to everyone are Twitter, at The Wow Podcast, our website, www.thewowpodcast.org. And uh, if you go there, you can also sign up for our Wow Mail and we'll, we'll drop you an email when we've got new episodes out. Cool. And on the... Um on the website stuff, we're going to, as we've said before, be releasing a new website soon. It's worldofwork.io, the worldofwork.io. Um, so www.worldofwork.io. You'll be able to check out some new stuff there. We're not entirely sure when that's going live, but it'll be in June. So probably a little bit after this episode, but we're not entirely sure. So hopefully that's something that you can look forward to. We're really uh, looking forward to it. It's been fun um, creating it. So why don't we check in, Jane? How are you getting on? I am. I'm all right. I've had, all I've right. had a bit of a cold this week. Yeah, you which have a bit. I have, you? and I've been. I'm a bit of a. I'm a negative Nancy when I've got a bit negative of a cold. Negative Nancy. You've um, been hiding it pretty well. Thank you. I uh, so I feel a bit ropey, but uh, summer is coming. Summer's like coming. it's freezing outside. That's still. the opposite of winter is coming, isn't it? Yeah, it's literally. I'm not watching Game of Thrones. No, 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 no. Uh, so the last series of Game of Thrones is, is on for those of you yes, listening okay, as we're watching okay. it, and I'm refusing to watch it until the end. Uh, but it seems to have uh, taken over the world. But yeah, otherwise, I'm good. I've got lots going on. I'm back at uni yeah. for term three. So that's a bit uh, blowing my mind yeah. at the moment. So I've just found out I'm a massive feminist. Okay. I always knew I was a bit of a feminist. I, I kind of would have guessed that. No, I always, knew, yeah, I always knew I was a bit of a feminist. And I've also discovered that uh, critical theory is probably my home. Okay. Because uh, I basically quite like the idea of exposing power relationships, which is kind of fun. Okay. So that's what, I've le- that's what I've learned this week. Cool. What about you? Um, I've had a good week. I've been working on a website. I've been coaching people. I've been doing a range of different things in that space, speaking to a few different people about different bits of work that might be coming up in, um, in the future, which is pretty fun. So things like workshops and webinars and things like that, you know, sort of networking, getting to know people, thinking about how a lot of the things we talk about fit together um, in a slightly different way, which is great fun. That sounds great. Yeah, it is. And um, potentially off on holiday in a bit, but more about that once I know a little bit more, maybe in another episode or so. Oh, that sounds good. But you've had your family here as well, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, that's right. I've had my um, my brother lives in uh, Shanghai, so he's been here. We've as had, you do. Yeah, exactly. We're a bit spread out. My mum lives in America. She's been here. They crossed over for a little bit, so loads of family stuff. Oh, that um, sounds lush. Yeah, it's been really good, really good. Um, good. Cool. So, nudge theory. Nudge theory, yeah. I know. 
So I guess we're going to do it the way we do a lot of these episodes. So we're going to do definition discussion, research roundup, list of a week, stories from a keyboard, some final thoughts and top tips, and then um, a bit of a checkout at the end and saying goodbye. So what do you think? Do you want to, should we just jump into it? Or? I think we should just crack on. Just crack Are you going to uh, start us off with some definitions? Uh, you know, there's very little I'd like more than talking about some definitions. So I really? think, well. Go on. All right. All right. Let's do it. So let's see what I can do. Uh, and... I'll run through the words we're going to discuss and then I'll, I'll bring them up individually. And you'll be able to get a, a flavour of roughly what this stuff's about uh, as I do it. So we're going to start by explaining behavioural economics. I'm sure a lot of you know about it, but we'll touch on it. We'll touch on libertarian paternalism, which is um, a framework that exists around the concept of nudge and nudging. We're going to define nudge itself in some of the language used by uh, the people who published the book Nudge. Um, we're going to touch on choice architecture and we're going to talk about heuristics. Uh, which we've, I think, probably touched on elsewhere in the conversations, and we certainly will. Again. Yeah, it's the one I can't pronounce properly. Yeah, it's a hard one. We'll get Heuristics. a whole list of those. Yeah, heuristics. Um, cool. All right, so behavioral economics. This is from Investopedia. It says that behavioral economics is the study of psychology as it relates to the economic decision making process of individuals and institutions. The two most important questions in this field are one, are a Economists' assumptions of utility or profit maximization, good approximations of real people's behavior. And two, do individuals maximize subjective expected utility? Right, so that's a bit of a, a clouded um, set of statements for people who aren't involved in economics and who maybe haven't looked at it. But basically what it says is, do people make decisions in the way that economists say they make decisions around sort of rationality and things like that? And yeah, are we rational like they say we are? Yeah. And, and I think we all know the answer is, yeah, uh-uh. Yeah, and, and we're kind of rational, but not in the way they say we are, right? So And sometimes we're not rational, and that's okay. And sometimes we're not rational as well, but we're kind of rational to ourselves. I don't know. Yes, and then, then you get to a very interesting place where you start questioning whether uh, it's our context. It's all about context, yeah. really, isn't it? Yeah. And where you're making those decisions. Sounds like that might be another podcast. Oh, James. <laughs> Sorry. Um, all right, so moving on. Libertarian paternalism. This is from Wikipedia. And libertarian paternalism, the reason we're mentioning it here is because it's an important sort of framework or sort of concept way of thinking um, around which some of this, this stuff's been based. So it's just worth getting it out there so people know what it is. Um, and the reason it's relevant is that obviously things like nudging and, and behavioral economics and a lot of this work is uh, supports influencing people to make decisions in different ways. So this is a construct that, that sort of helps explain some of the, the morality around that and the way people see some of this. So a, a definition here is that libertarian paternalism is the idea that it is both possible and legitimate for private and public institutions to affect behaviour while also respecting the freedom of choice as well as the implementation of that idea. Right? So, you know, like... Um, you can hold multiple ideas in your mind at the same time that, that don't always join up. What this is saying is that you can hold the idea of freedom of choice in your mind while also, to some extent, nudging behaviours. Yeah, so you can encourage someone to do something without having to force them. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah, and it's okay. I mean, yeah. that, that's the important piece. That's, the, that's what they're arguing. Yeah, and people still, you know, you're still respecting that freedom of choice yeah. while, while you're doing this. So a slight bit of cognitive dissonance, I think, is um, required for that one to some extent for me, but we're not going to go into it, which is... Uh, a risk that, that we face. Um, moving on swiftly uh, with my shovel to get myself out of that hole, uh, we're going to look at nudge. And here we're going to use the definition from Thaler and Sunstein, the, you know, the authors that are often cited who've written um, the most popular book on this subject in, in 2018. And when they talk about nudge, they say, um, any aspect of a choice architecture that alters people's behaviour 
in a predictable way without forbidding any options or significantly changing their economic incentives. They add that to, um, to say, count as a mere nudge. Um, intervention must be easy and cheap to avoid, right? So what that's saying is, is that these are sort of minor things that affect the way that people change without materially changing the incentives that they receive. Um, and to count as a mere nudge, the intervention must be easy and cheap to avoid, right? So it's not yeah. like an imposition or a structure. Yeah, it's always got to feel like a proper choice. Yeah. And they're saying that uh, you can't bribe people to do it. Yeah. yeah and they're stops, saying you yeah. can't force people to do it. Yeah. And those are the principles. Um, the phrase I like is someone said on the website, I can't find it, where I got yeah. it from. A gentle push in the right direction. That's nice. I, I like that. Yeah, it yeah. made me feel yeah, yeah, more yeah. okay with all of yeah, this yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's all in the right direction, right? Um, but I guess things in this context, like, you know, if you build a wall that prevents somebody from doing something, that's not a nudge. That's far beyond a nudge, right? Because it brings in all the barrier types of things in there. So. Yeah, interesting choice of, of example. Oh, yes. Um, I about that. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Um, moving on. A choice architecture, again, from Feller and Sunstein. So we see um, that phrase popping up quite a bit. And all we really mean by choice architecture and, and what they say is that choice architecture um, is defined as the context in which people make decisions. So, you know, what are the structurings, what are the relationships, what are the information that are in there? Are there any predetermined things? What, what are the comparative options within a series of choices? Stuff like that um, goes into the creation of a choice architecture for any activity, I guess, that you can have. You can have choice architecture around lots of things. And the last one, heuristics um, from Miriam Webster. This says that heuristics are a problem-solving method that uses shortcuts to produce good enough solutions given a limited time frame or deadline. Heuristics are a flexibility technique for quick decisions, particularly when working with complex data. Decisions made using a heuristic approach may not necessarily be optimal. Heuristics is derived from the Greek word meaning to discover, right? So these are just kind of decision-making shortcuts. I've heard heuristics referred to as rules of thumb, yep. you know, that kind of stuff. I and think in modern language, they might well be uh, common hacks. Yeah, so yeah, people okay. where people know how to do things quickly and easily that solve problems. You're well down with the kids. I, I, what? Common hacks. I like it. Oh, no. I'm obsessed with life hacks. Are you? Okay, yeah, life okay. hacker. Yeah, All that's right. why. Yeah, cool. um, and also I, I obsessed about hacking my own brain. Yeah. Like oh, trying yeah, to yeah, figure out. I always yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. that. Cool. Cool. Um, okay. So yeah. uh, what do you think of those? I like, um, I like the things that are in here. I like the subject immensely. I think it's fascinating. Um, I think some of the, the definitions for me are, are a bit... Um, a bit clunky. So I think, you know, the bit in behavioral economics that talks about utility and things like that, it's helpful, but it's not necessarily um, accessible as a definition for people who don't have that economic background. Yeah, and I think I think um, the bit, and the reason I, I like that one, and I, I totally agree with you, it's not, but the, the point I think they make is that I think it's really important is around, um, it, firstly, it's a study of psychology. Yeah. And yeah. I'm really tired of people telling me that behavioral economics is economics. And as a student of both, yeah, 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 not an always brilliant student of both, but as a student of both, I don't. It is psychology, yeah. Um, but it's an economic, it's an economist spin on psychology, yeah. uh, and I think that's really helpful to remember that. And I also think um, this concept of decision making process of individuals and institutions is really important, yeah, yeah, um, because I think uh, the book Nudge, yeah talks about making decisions for health and well-being, mm -hmm. but the reality is that nudges can be used in many ways. Yeah, they're all over the world. I mean, and, and I guess um, that's part of the reason we're talking about them is, you know, they're such an important thing. Yeah, and uh, maybe that's a good time to talk exactly about that, because we did talk a little bit about, uh, just before we came on to record this, about why are we actually interested and what's, what's relevant. So 
I think it's really important to think about as a whole series, we've been talking about changing behaviors and um, nudge feels really relevant here. Yeah. Um, it's been hugely popular. It's been used by governments all around the world with mixed results. Some of it's been really successful. Some of it hasn't. It may be being used in your environment right now to influence your behavior. Yeah. And we think it's important people understand yeah, yeah. that. And it might be consciously or unconsciously used by people designing stuff as well. Some people do it with the knowledge and the insight, but some people just... Have some people learned. do it because it feels instinctive. Yeah. Um, and some of it is common sense, which makes it slightly yeah. complex. Um, but you should, but people should know that it exists, I think. Um, and I also think really importantly, there's things that you can learn from nudge theory and from the uses of nudge that have been um, executed around the world that might help you change your own behaviours or change your own workplace for the better. Yeah. So that's why we thought it'd be really interesting. Cool. Um, I'm going to kick a research roundup off, which is always a moment of absolute fear. Mm. Um, and I'm going to kick it off slightly confusingly, not with nudge theory. Oh, that sounds fun. What are we going to talk about? I know. So we're going to talk about Cialdini. Oh, right. Okay. And we're going to talk Cialdini. about Cialdini for two reasons. Okay. One is um, that back in the 80s, Cialdini, um, who is a psychologist, uh, wrote a book called uh, Influence of Science Persuasion. Uh, and it's a really influential book um, lots of people talk about it in the behavioural economics and behavioural science field as a book they read early doors and it really changed mm -hmm. their thinking about it. when things. was it? When, when did it? When was I think it? it was 84 84 okay something like that something like that and, and Chiodin is a very easily accessible writer so I read it before I had any background information yeah. so, so there is an element of that but he also did some really great field research, which makes me really happy because nice. I love field research, yeah. even though I sometimes question how uh, it's validity. But anyway, he did some amazing uh, field research and he was also really fascinated about how people um, are persuaded. So I want to start with Childini's six heuristics uh, or six principles of persuasion, which are things that he believed uh, people should could use as shortcuts to predict behavior and to influence behavior. Okay. Um, he uh, and and some of these, if you've not heard about this sort of stuff, will feel like common sense. But what's interesting about children is he went out and found evidence for yeah. them. Yeah, and a lot of it is common sense, yeah. right? But Loads it's still it's important, sense. right? Like breathing, um, common sense. And you know, important. he spent an in. So one of the studies he talks about, and it's not one of his, but one of the studies he talks about is, for example, um, getting hotel towels mm -hmm. picked up off the floor oh, so right. they don't get washed every night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that would save huge amounts of energy yeah, yeah, and yeah. cost. Yeah. And he's he's just I, I like him because he he gets really into that stuff. So his six are recip reciprocity. So the argument that if someone does something for me, I will do something for them. Fine. And the example he uses is. Uh, when uh, a relationship, when Mexico was having huge problems, okay. uh, Ethiopia, despite facing famine and, and virtual bankruptcy as a state, still participated in the Mexico uh, uh, support, financial support program okay. to get them back on their feet after wow. they'd had an environmental disaster. And if you unpick it and you go back 50 years earlier, um, Mexico had waded in to protect Ethiopia's sanctity, uh, political independence. Oh, so they yeah. felt like they owed them something. Yeah, okay, cool. And this concept that, 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 that you can owe something between two people, but yeah. also you can inherit ownership. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, owing, owing someone something, and that as a society you can feel like you owe yeah, something. Yeah, That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, I cool, think it's a really yeah, cool thing. Nice. So reciprocity. Next one is consistency. And, and this is really specific. It's about being consistent mm -hmm. with your self-image. Okay. So if you perceive that something is in line with your own self-image, mm -hmm. you will do it. So, for example, if you imagine yourself to be a good father yeah. and you are told that good fathers take time off work to go to their um, kids' parents' evenings yeah. 
you will do it. Fine. You are more likely to do it because you perceive that Fine. that's in line with how you perceive yourself. Yeah, yeah. And if your perception is that bad fathers don't go, then you are more likely to go. Yeah, gotcha. So you can influence people by um, creating an understanding that a certain behavior is in line with their self-image. So therefore, if you get famous people who are good fathers to talk about being a good father and going and taking times off, yeah, yeah, then yeah. you change people's perceptions of what Fine. being a good father is. Mm-hmm. How does that relate? To... Well, I, I, we'll come on to it. Anyway, go on. Uh, so the next one is social validation. So uh, I think that's sometimes called social proof. Mm-hmm. So other people like me think this is a great thing. Okay. So that's when they put people who look like you and sound like you and have the gotcha. same as you in, gotcha. on the telly and say, oh, I did this and it was amazing and it changed my life. You're like, oh, yeah. well, I'm like that yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. I I'm, had that I, same I'd problem. I'd like that too. Or, so it's yeah. why it's it's the ridiculous thing of uh, looking for people who've had lived experience to be the only people who have the answers of fine. what your and problem is you're facing. Yeah. Yeah, fine. Um, liking is his next one. And that's about... Do people like the person selling the idea or trying to persuade? So yeah. if you like me, you yeah. are more likely to do as I ask or more likely to do what I hope you will do. Fine, fine. And, and when Cialdini talks about like he also talks about attractiveness. So if you fine. like me in any way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he then talks about authority. So creating an authority figure or expert. Now, if you're in the UK, experts get a bad rap at the moment. Yeah, a lot of places. Uh, but rea- realistically, if you look at um, how... Uh, the really best example I can give you that is that if your doctor tells you to go out and walk 15 minutes every day, you are more likely to do Fine, it. Fine, because there's that whole credibility, respect, well, all it, that authority. It's your doctor. It. He yeah, must yeah, yeah. know, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so using that. And then his final, which is probably the most common to people, is about scarcity. So mm-hmm. if you make people think something is scarce, or if indeed it is scarce, they are more likely to want it. Can I can I just tell you a really like total side story on that? But I think yeah, it's yeah, of my parents did uh, research field work a long way away on a sort of island many, many miles away from anywhere um, as anthropologists. And this was in the sort of early 80s, late 70s. Um, and it was around a time that a lot of environmental movements were taking off. And there was a lot of uh, discussion around the endangerment of sea turtles, right? So they actually spoke to the people on the island and tried to say that just so you know the turtles are are, you know going extinct and all that kind of stuff trying to change their behaviors and the people went straight out hunting turtles right and they're like well if these things are gone we better get them before they're gone (laughs) (laughs) so talk about unintended consequences but that is i guess scarcity in action in a really unfortunate way no no that's absolutely brilliant because it's a perfect example of why if you don't understand this stuff yes you can really accidentally accidentally in it particularly if you're designing policy yeah yeah, you can see how people can accidentally do completely the wrong thing and you just get on yeah of course it does Um, <laughs> I, I, I like to think Cialdini would really like that example. Yeah, funny. Uh, okay, so although, uh, Ch- I mean, Cialdini himself talks about Thaler and Sunstein's work and the Nudge book as very relevant. Yeah. And, and, okay. and uh, he's, he, they, they, I've seen a couple of interviews between the two of them. Fine. And they talk quite a lot about um, what they do and, and, and how, it's influenced, how they've influenced each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly... If you now flash forward from mm-hmm. the 80s yep. um, and you get to a place where Thaler and Sunstein are working together and they are trying to understand how people can be influenced to make decisions for their own good without being forced to. And that's their thing, right? They don't want people to be forced to. They want it to be a freedom. They, they fundamentally believe that if you make that free choice, you're much more likely to do it and it's meant to be likely to benefit. And that's for all libertarian. And that's where that comes yeah. in, yeah. But so um, 
Nudge theory is based on the idea that by shaping the environment, which they talk about choice architecture, yeah. which is the one you, you were talking about, someone can influence the likelihood that one option is chosen over another by individuals. Right? Okay. So, so what they're the saying is... Bit, yeah. So what they're saying is change how the choices look yeah. and how they're presented yeah. or the environment they're presented in. Mm-hmm. Change the context yeah. of that choice through a variety of methods, and I'll talk about those in a minute, and you can influence a person to make a better choice. Okay. But you're not forcing them to. And and the three principles are really important, right? All judge, they argue that all judgments should be transparent and never misleading. All, yep. sorry, all nudges should be transparent and never misleading. They argue you should always be able to opt out of that nudge, so, and easily. So it's not forced. Yep. And they argue... Uh, that there should be good reason that the behavior that you're trying to encourage is good for the welfare of the person being nudged. Yeah. Right? Which is the paternalistic bit, I guess. So their point is that this is for good, not evil. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and and what, what's the interesting is if you, if you read some of the sort of more practitioner, more uh, less academic stuff, Someone like Rory Sutherland, who works at Ogilvy, who's been really passionate around nudging and talks about it a lot, would argue that advertising's been doing this for a very long time. I totally, yeah. And so actually some would argue that Thaler and Sunstein have learnt from the practitioner world, but not the one you expect, in order to use that information to influence people in a public policy environment. And that then makes a much more... It it seems to make much more sense, right, as a a structure. So um, what I thought I'd do that would be really useful is talk you through... um, Sunstein wrote a summary paper for Harvard, which is publicly available. And he outlined 10 important nudges that he thinks people should know about and understand. Yeah. So I thought it'd be really good just to run through them. Yeah, great. So that people can see how they work and we can have a chat. And you can tell me which one your favourite is. Maybe. <laughs> oh, my favourite. All right. Yeah, okay. yeah, I have a favourite. I have an absolute favourite app on his attention. list. Okay. So um, he talks about, number one, default. Okay. Um, so setting the default such that you're encouraging behavior. And the example for that would be um, donor cards. Yeah, okay, cool, uh, cool. So when you give, uh, so uh, those of you who don't know in the UK, there's been an ongoing period of each country within the UK moving over to opt out donor versus opt in. And this is organ donation, right? This is organ donation after something happens to yeah. you. And the idea is if you make the default the better behavior and people have to opt out, but they can opt out easily, yeah. then you are more likely to get people just going well that's fine I'll do yeah. that so Whereas, like in, in countries my understanding is in countries where the default is that you're not an organ donor organ yeah. donation rates are which was seven, it, yeah which was England up until two years ago yeah and it's like 7-8% donation rates yeah. because people actively take that that action to do it and they need to whereas if it, the default is that you are an organ donor it's like 90% Correct. Something like that. I don't yeah. know the numbers. But. And it's big. It's because largely people feel like it's a bigger decision than it is. So they, they change the way they think about the decision. Yeah. Whereas if someone presents it as the norm, it's like, oh, well, that's what everyone's doing. Cool. Um, so simplification is his second. And he, he, he goes on about this quite a lot. Not goes on strong. That's harsh words. Yeah, uh, but he does talk about it. And, and he says, you know, people just don't get how much you need to simplify and however complicated everything is in this world if you cannot simplify it down to a literal what is the next action i take yeah. and why am i doing it then it's too complicated Fine. so his first challenge is pretty much always go back and make it more simple Fine. um he talks about use of social norms so the big one that cialdini also talked about was the nine out of by telling people that nine out of ten guests reuse their towels what you're saying is you're not dirty 
it's not horrible. It's not yeah. you're not weird to reuse yeah, your yeah, towels. Yeah. Actually, everyone normally reuses your towels, and that's a good thing. And yeah. here's and they might tell you and why. Don't you want to be like everybody else? And don't like, you want yeah. to be like everyone else? Don't you want to be, be the gang? majority? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they play to all of that. Third one. Uh, sorry, the fourth one is around uh, just increasing ease and convenience. So putting things in front of you. So my favourite is um, if you reduce, and he talks about reducing ambiguity. So my favourite one is when they put up signage of how to walk from Waterloo Station to London Bridge in London. Yeah, okay. The tube stopped being as crowded. The metro, in other terms, uh, stopped being as crowded between the two stations because it was only it's like it's a, a 18-minute walk. Oh, right, okay. So yeah, it's yeah, a decent walk. Yeah, yeah. Just along the south but it, it's, a, it's not bad. Well, yeah, but it's a really awkward walk. Yes, Because if you, if you don't know where you're going, you get lost. Yeah, it's kind of it's, warranty, it's, isn't it, it's not, whatever it uh, Those of you listening in America, we don't have grid systems because yeah. we, we had horses. <laughs> and so we have bridges and horses. It's all really complicated in London. So um, it's all a bit wiggledy yeah, is yeah, the only yeah, way yeah, I can describe it. But they really worked. Yeah, it didn't yeah. work for like everyone, but it yeah. worked enough to change the pattern of yeah. pattern of behaviour. And it's just because I tried it once without the signage, and I got lost. And yeah. I know London, yeah. so reducing ambiguity is really big. Uh, he talks about disclosure. So the biggest example of that would be when credit cards have to show the full cost of borrowing, mm-hmm. not just the interest rate period, um, and in some cases even have to compare how that compares yeah. to other the the average. Yeah. Um, so disclosing as much information and forcing. Uh, or encouraging people to disclose as much information so they can make better decisions. Uh, he talks about warnings, which is one of the most common. So cigarette packets in yeah. the UK for, have long had massive warnings on them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that that that's a very straightforward and simple area of a nudge. Um, he then talks about pre-commitment strategies. So, and this links whole so much to the goal setting stuff we did. Yeah, it does. So it? pre-commitment is the idea that it works really well when people struggle to execute their behavior in line with their goals. So procrastination mm-hmm. or uh, behavior that is is difficult, like yeah. changing behavior around your eating or something like that. And the idea is if you commit to something in the future that has a deadline at some point, you're going, you're going, it's going to have to happen. Can I give you a great example of that? Yeah, of course you I can. Can't, I don't know if you remember, but we started, like we were recording all these podcasts at the end of last year. Yeah. And then at one point in December, we just started going on Twitter and telling people we were going to launch it on a certain date, right? And then we yeah. didn't really have any choice. So, so I think it's really funny you've chosen that example. <laughs> Is it? Because, because I'm, I have massive issues around uh, procrastination sure. and sticking to behaviours. So I use pre-commitment strategies all the time. Yeah. And I use them with you all the time for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I will say things like, can we just block out two days yeah, to do yeah. uh, research and recording yeah. for that episode? Because then I know what happened. And... I know that if I've got a deadline that's happening, I will get it done and yeah. I will get to that day. Um, yeah. So at the minute, we're in, for people listening, we're, we blocked out basically three days to record a series in a bit, um, in, in a yeah. bit of a sprint. Um, and so for me, that was, and we set that like three months yeah, ago. Yeah, long time Right, that was long, three months in the diary, ago. but it forces me to, to protect that time. Yeah. So it works really well. Um, he talks about reminders and prompts. So email reminders of deadlines. Um or also um, email reminders that your, uh, I don't know, power uh, commitment to the company is yeah. coming up for renewal yeah, and do yeah, you yeah. want to pick a different package? Yeah, yeah. So encouraging people. So there's lots of stuff that's been done in the British, uh, in Britain around um, making uh, power companies and utility companies highlight to their customers they can choose and yeah, yeah the competition I yeah and that they and that they they have to let them know yeah, that that yeah, is yeah, an yeah. option and they're not tied in um eliciting implementation intentions what's that mean it's fancy isn't it so basically it's when you get someone to commit to something um 
you get someone to tell them your intention yeah. in advance and that will make them do something. So the easiest sure. way to explain it is practical. Okay. If you ask someone, do you plan to vote yeah. next month? Yeah. Irrespective of their answer, they are more likely to vote. Yeah. Because you have asked them a question, you have yeah. forced them to make a choice and therefore you've brought it, I assume you've brought it into their consciousness yeah. and made them aware that this is something they need to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that's a fascinating one isn't it yeah and then the last one is informing people of the nature and consequences of their own past choices it's apparently called smart disclosure in the US alright so uh, the example I would give for that is um, and and you see it in, in a few places where people sort of highlight how far behind or how how, how close you were to a deadline last time so there's, okay. uh, I've had it with uh, my HR department have been like this time last year, you were, um, this time last year, we were uh, three three days before the deadline for doing all your appraisals. Okay. And you did not submit your appraisals till X date. So yeah. just a reminder, like, that you were two weeks over and you probably need to get started. Yeah. And it was probably phrased a bit nicer than that. But the idea, you need to, you need to look backwards and see what, what, what happens if you don't make different choices yeah. you know it's the Einstein, the Einstein thing don't yeah. keep doing the same thing yeah, yeah, yeah. and expecting different results thinking of like a little minor thing that's just popped into my mind thinking about all of these is um, if you drive sort of uh, electric or hybrid cars and they've got all the different metrics on your console so they'll have things that talk about your miles per gallon so yeah. and the last trip and things like that and, and that might be a bit of a nudge thing so by keeping it visible to you disclosing how it's all going and informing you of your last trip maybe that helps drive your decisions in a different way and it's a sort of a nudge to more um environmentally conscious yeah i would and and you know you pick up on something that's really relevant which is largely this stuff has been used in advertising and user design of products right and i i almost feel like it's psychology learning from the practical versus the other way around in some ways and maybe it's not maybe they're they're just really quick on the uptake maybe it's all at the same time but there's lots of things that people have been doing without realizing that's what they're doing yeah um so i what do you think I think it's cool. I mean, you know what? A lot of people are going to listen and say, well, that's just common sense. Right. And, and it is. I think a couple of them. A couple of them don't feel like a just A couple of them sense. aren't. Yeah, a couple of them are a bit more deep. But a lot of it is kind of common sense. But they're still fascinating and they're still really powerful. And they're great because they're human and they work. I mean, this is kind of reality. Mm. Um, I sort of wonder a little bit about whether, you know, being aware of this diminishes the effect of these nudges. I don't really know. But as a set of things, I think they're really interesting. And I think it's great for people to learn about this because it helps them have clarity um, over their own decision-making process. So, you know, learning about how things work helps you more effectively yeah, and I think, use your decision. I think there's loads of stuff that can be used really easily in the workplace in this stuff totally. as well. Because I think, um, so the example we were talking about the other day was uh, an application form that didn't have UK at the top of the country list even though it was a UK based job and it wasn't a particularly high paid one so it's not like people loads of people would be moving abroad and so people were having to scroll down and and there's a particularly particular additional annoyance about the UK in that it could be Great Britain it could be England it It could could be be UK UK so so there is a thing about where is it going to be anyway so you're scrolling through all the countries and they were saying that when they put UK to the top yeah. Instantly, things just sped up. Yeah, I'm sure. Massively. Yeah. And people like weren't dropping out of their Wi-Fi and stuff like yeah. that when they're filling the form in. Cool. Uh, okay. So uh, I've also picked out four real-world examples that various uh, cool. that some cool. of the authors have talked about. So the probably the most famous story that gets told, and Thaler 
was I saw Richard Taylor in an interview and he was like he he was like I'm still trying to find out where the data comes from on this one. Okay. But um, the story goes that in an Amsterdam in the Amsterdam airport in the men's toilets they were having problems with spillage. I believe it's the phrase. Yeah, uh, that's a nice way. We're making a little bit of a mess. Yeah. And so they got decal stickers yeah. of flies mm-hmm. and they put them in the base of the urinals yeah so that men had something to point at yeah and they saw spillage dropped yeah. by 80 percent yeah right which which in thaler and the way Thaler and sunstein talk about their work is just a classic example of you're trying to get something that everyone wants to happen to happen right you you, you no one no one's happy about spillage in yeah, a toilet yeah, right yeah. not even the people doing it yeah uh, no one wants to go into a bathroom today it's not a big deal. Yeah. It's influenced by lots of people doing small things. Yeah. And it's a it's a, it's it's not a lot of effort. No. But someone needs a bit of motivation. Yeah. And so what they do is they just say, "Well, I have something to aim at." Yeah, Because yeah. that's fun. Yeah. Let's just um, moderate the built environment slightly. And, and I wonder how much better that worked than a big sign saying, "Yeah, please be careful." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet it worked infinitely more. I can I can confirm. That those flies are there. I'm not sure if they're still there now, but I've definitely that's so cool. Seen those been in flies. those, been in those. Bus- so yeah. the, and interesting. This is where quite a lot of nudge theory can borrow from the digital world and things like gamification. Yeah. Because and we were talking about this earlier, Candy Crush. Yeah. And um, certainly with something like the flies, that is a classic example of gamifying yeah. something and learning from the digital world and saying, okay, how can we make this fun? How can we make this a game? Yeah. And how will that encourage people yeah. to behave in the yeah. way we want? Totally. Um, so the second one is I've mentioned him earlier Rory Sutherland so Rory Sutherland is not a psychologist he's a uh, advertising well I don't know I mean he's a very high up advertising man he's yeah. at Ogilvy he now is obsessed with Nudge he runs something called Nudge Stock which is a festival looking at behavioural economics in, in down in the south coast of England um, and he he talks about Alka-Seltzer the brand and I, I, I hope I've got this right because mm-hmm. I don't want to get in trouble with Alka-Seltzer but he he says that the there was an advert in certainly in the UK and it had a glass with two tablets dropping into it. Yeah. And it made the noise blink blink fizz fizz or right. plop plop fizz fizz. And right? that's for two tablets falling in. And it in was two tablets fizzing. falling in. Yeah. And uh he says the the line was written at the bidding of a psychologist who suggested if you create the social norm around using two Alka-Seltzer rather than one, you'll double your sales. Now We've talked mostly about how Thaler and Sunstein talk about for public good. That's yep. clearly not a public good. But it is a very interesting example of how changing someone's norms, ideas, can about what, what, is, what other people do yeah. makes you do it. Yeah, right? the social norming piece yeah. is so powerful. Yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, third example I really liked was a, something called the Dollar a Day Teen Pregnancy Project. Okay, where was that? So that was over in the States. And uh, one of the uh, municipal councils uh, started giving teenage girls a dollar for every day they weren't pregnant. Little and often. Yeah, yeah. Which I thought I, I was that's like, kind of nice I was thing, like, you know what? That that's kind of not dissimilar to some of the stuff I've talked about in terms of um, like giving up smoking and changing yeah, my eating yeah, habits. Yeah. Like, just do it every day, and it's every day you win change, today. It? Yeah, yeah, it's a micro change. The genius thing is, you're either pregnant or you're not, right? So, yeah, so, so once 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 you are, you are. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, the last one, which we talked about earlier, which you pointed out, was the one around uh, the UK tax system. Mm-hmm. And the e-reminders. And there was a whole experiment. And I've got some of the um, terminology they use, which I quite like. 
but it was a whole experiment to put various different types of statements in your tax reminder. So instead of just sending you a tax reminder, they would say, did you know nine-tenths? Nine-tenths of the population of the UK pay their tax. Yeah, okay. Did you know that uh, if you don't pay your tax... So they tried lots of different ones, and they had like, did you know if you... If uh, tax pays for the NHS and all the great institutions and all of the yeah. things we do. Uh, and then it's got uh, things like um, they tried it. So one is just, did you know nine tenths of people pay their tax? And then yeah. the next one would be UK based. So did you know nine tenths of the UK population yeah, pay yeah, their yeah, tax? Yeah. And they tried all these out. And the bottom line is people cough up, right? Yeah. When you put information in a reminder letter. Um it had a big change, didn't it? It, it significantly of... changed the way that they thought. And of course, public policy is the perfect place to test this because it's millions of people doing lots of little things. Yeah, on a repeated basis. Isn't on it? a massively repeated basis. And it is it is not something that they're not going to do. So if you have to write a tax return, you're probably going to have to do it for 30 years of your life. And it's probably going to hang over your head for 30 years of your life. So um, lots of that. They saw a massive... Uh, increase in late payments which sounds wrong but actually what i mean is rather than default payments they were getting late payments yeah yeah, yeah. uh so they saw loads of people going oh oh maybe i maybe i should pay tax if everyone else is yeah uh so and i think i think that's a really great example because it's fun isn't it it's because nice it's example. um yeah it's a good thing so those are my examples as well um so it's kind of been a bit of a mixed research roundup in terms of some of it's like very practical but the book itself is very practical um so it's difficult to pull away from that. Mm. And and also, largely, and I'm probably going to get myself trapped, there's not a lot of theory in it. So for something that is a theory, it it's a very, although it is psychology, it's written in a very economic way, yeah. which means that there's not a lot of um, theoretical underpinning, I would yeah. argue. Or maybe it's all theory and there's no practice. I'm not sure. One way. Yes, but certainly, but I, I think it's interesting and I think it's helpful. What, yeah. do you, what are your thoughts on it all? Uh, like I said at the beginning, I think Nudge is fantastic. And, and you know, it's that sort of, coming together of multiple things I like. I like psychology and I love economics and finance and all that stuff. So when they come together, it's great. Um, I think it is inherently common sense with some interesting underpinnings that go behind it. And I, I love that. You know, I read something ages ago that stuck with me that I kind of think relates to this a little bit. When we think about things like building design and architecture, um, particularly engineering, we tend to think that we, as humanity, have understood the mathematics and and uh, the mechanics and, and all the uh, sort of engineering mathematics behind stuff before we build it. But in reality, what's happened, if you look at the way that we've designed buildings over time, is we've just gone out and built stuff mm. and it's worked. And then later on, engineers come in and they then understand stresses and strains and well, structure. And, and this is why I have so much problem with some of the management literature. Mm. Because I'm sitting there and what they've done is they've gone into businesses and looked at what worked. Yeah. But they, and they've been able to identify what worked, but they haven't necessarily been able to pull apart the context of why. Yes, it might be that that's thing. been yeah. satisfactory. And so for me, I, I, I sat in a lecture the other, last week and someone someone went, context is everything. And I was just mm. like, yes, I felt like yeah, standing yeah, up yeah. and going. Because I think I think psychology and economics have been treated in a very scientific way. Yeah. And they're not. Yeah. They, they can be, but there is an element of them that is um, is context, highly context yeah. driven. Um, and that that is quite difficult to define because there's so many variables in the context. Yeah. And a lot of nudges about the context in which you're... It's nearly all yeah. about the context. I mean, I would argue that their, their choice architecture is another one. Like context design. It's context, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's how do you how do you change someone's yeah, context? Yeah. And your built environment is absolutely your physical context. I mean, a lot of it's context. Stuff. Yeah. Um, and if we look at something that we talked about 
very early on when we look at uh, the you know a definition of behavior model and we look at our maybe favorite person Kurt Lewin we said that an individual's behavior is a function of a person and their environment and that's very much the context piece right and at the same time that's very much what Nudge is saying so you can change the person by changing their information and the things that they have and you can change their environment by changing uh, things like their choice architecture or their physical environment and stuff like that. Yeah, and I guess the bit that um, I don't think they address, and I don't think they intend to, and mm. I'm not expecting them to, but I keep coming back to it. I keep reading in various things that values are hardwired. Okay. And you and I both have discussed at great length mm-hmm. that we don't think that's the case. But surely that's another part of context changing. So how do you yeah. actually uh, change what people value and how they value things and yeah. what their values are? Yeah. Because for me, that if that is such a significant part of it, then yes, this is really helpful around changing whether you walk from this station yeah. to that and they can have huge impact. But uh, if we're not doing it for the right reasons, how quickly if someone changed our context back, will it drop? Yeah. yeah and yeah, therefore yeah, yeah. is it sustainable? Is it a war of context around us? So if, you know, if someone, if someone decides to knock down a building between London Bridge and Waterloo and those arrows disappear... Yeah. How quickly will people's yeah, behaviours change? And again, that's your habituation or whatever. It yeah. To be and so the argument, I guess, is that, that from Cialdini is if you understand these heuristics, no, because the whole point is they're meant to be shortcuts, so that yeah. once you've done it, that should be you should have learned that behaviour. Yeah, 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 it becomes. But I, 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 I question that. Yeah. Oh, so it's fascinating. Anyway, anyway, I, I think it's good. Um, really interesting stuff. Should we? Um, should we have a little bit of a list? Why not? Although I I feel like I cheated and had loads of lists this week. Well, there have been a few lists, but that's okay. Okay. We've got a special It's economics, they like lists. Yeah, exactly. We can do um something special with that. Um so uh the list this week I'll, I'll just run you through it. It's um five ways um that people can uh, or do or could use nudging as an idea in, in the workplace. And we're looking at it um just a couple of sort of practical examples that, that focus on different areas. Um, so one is around things like programs of change, particularly something to do with ways of working or culture change. And, and if we think about that, you know, part of the challenge that you have with these programs is taking people along on your journey. So when we've talked about change, we talk a lot about communication and, and how you can make sure that you, you take people along and keep up the momentum and all that kind of good stuff. And one way that you can use some nudging concepts behind that is to do something like create a visual um, progress chart or tracker or something like that on the wall. So by bringing something into the built environment and giving people these regular reminders of it, you can help nudge them towards continuing to adopt and maintain the behaviours you're trying to bring in or whatever it happens to be. So that's a little example of how you can use nudge practically through, um, through physical changes to built environment in the workplace. Another one would be, for example, around learning. So if you wanted to create more of a culture of learning, um, what you could do potentially is to say set up in uh, in you know a breakout area or a cafe or, or some part of your building um, books that are relevant to the direction your organization's going in new research you could create you know a research library and and that has the advantage of both bringing the concept of research into the forefront of people's mind and reminding them regularly about it but also giving them content that they can use to enrich themselves so that would be a way to nudge behavior change towards learning if we think about things like compliance, um, so if you've got a, a sort of annual process of compliance that you need to go through or a quarterly process, um, to help people do that, you can give them reminders of where they were this time last year. So you can say, you know, on the 20th of November last year, you were 90% of the way through completing your annual compliance process. How far along are you today? Or whatever it happens to be. And that reminder and that self-referencing point um, can help encourage that. 
And, and similarly, that could be saying, you know, 80% uh, of your peers have done this. You know, it's your annual performance review process. 70% of your peers have completed their annual performance assessment by the end of November. Our health and safety of executive always used to do that. I'm sure. 92 of the staff have yep. completed. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Who are the other three? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know there's 95 of us. So certainly in, in my world where we had, um, you know, in financial services, it's heavily regulated, blah, blah, blah. You've got mandatory training on a quarterly basis and you get emails. You know, 78% of, uh, of your divisional team have completed their mandatory training with one month to go till the deadline. Yeah. The slight problem we had was when uh, they were automated messages and it was like 12% of the team. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Well, I'm not doing it now. Yeah, well, if that's a great example of how it... How it, yeah, social yeah you well. really need to be careful yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, financial planning here's a fun one to do with defaults so if you look at things like pension contributions and this is a huge thing right behavioral finance is a subject that's fascinating but trying to get people to save and be prudent um, and sensible with the way they manage their money is difficult but if you bring in a default to uh, pension contributions you can have a huge impact so for example if um, you're changing a, an annual review of pensions. You could say to people in a, in a letter, you could say, we're introducing a new pension payment. Tick here if you'd like to be part of that at 3%. Um, that would you know, get a lot of people to do it at 3%. But if you send them another letter that said, you know, um, annual pension plan changes are coming into place, um, you have three options. You could maintain your current rate of 3%. You could go up to 5% or you could go to 7%. If you pre-tick the 7%, then people will go to 7% yeah. or predominantly and they'll be better off in the long term. Um, so that, that whole defaulting thing is, is powerful. Uh, and then the last one that's quite nice is around health and well-being. So if you want to encourage people in your organization to spend more time outside, to exercise a little bit more, to focus a little bit on the well-being and health benefits that come from that, you could do things like provide a, um, a, a little map. So if you want to do a 5K or 10K run at lunch, here's, here's a map. You know, so if somebody from another office is there, you could do that. That would both legitimize that activity, but also help give people the information that helps them do it. So it just breaks down some of the barriers. Um, so that was five ones. An example on culture change, an example around learning, an example around compliance, an example around financial uh, planning and prudence, and an example around health and well-being. So hopefully that kind of brings it to life a little bit in a, in a more accessible way in, in the workplace. Yeah, and I think, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's, when you start realizing just how many ways then it becomes trying to work out what's going to have an impact versus what feels like over-engineering. Yeah, yeah. A testing, B testing, C testing, D testing, whatever oh, it is. A, B testing. Yeah, so, um, but it's it's interesting. And I guess the, the point is, and, and there's lots of writing on user design these days, but the point is if you take a little bit more time in thinking about what might make someone want to do it a bit more, quite often you can save yourself quite a lot of money. Yeah. And quite a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. That's what I've learned. Positive change. That, that sort of... You just have to be careful people don't think they're conning you. They're well, conning yeah, them. yeah, that's true. So you talked about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't I've want to be taken from mug. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's like, a very British doing. phase that basically <laughs> means I don't want someone to take advantage of me. Yes, exactly. I don't want you to think I'm a fool and, and yeah. take advantage of me accordingly. Anyway, so I think that's a fun list. Um, it's a great list. So I guess we're kind of starting to wind up a little bit. Why don't we look at stories yeah have you got any specific yeah. stories everyone's heard this one before but i'm i'm gonna bang it out there because i think it's really important when i gave up smoking um i combined two of uh mr sunstein's techniques yep. pre-commitment yes by telling <laughs> you tell the, the whole, whole office yeah. um what was going to happen yep. and uh visual pro in fact it was three because i had visual prompts as well and i also 
uh, advocated the dollar a day equivalent. Okay. So I had uh, I put up a big A3 poster of the calendar of the year, and I put a green cross through every day I didn't smoke. Cool. And it got to the point where I remember sitting in a pub on a Saturday night, six weeks in, I'd had a couple of drinks, yeah. and I really wanted a cigarette. Yep. And I remember thinking, I cannot go into the office and look Naomi particularly in the yeah. eye and te- not put my green cross up. Yeah, I wouldn't okay. even have to tell her, yeah, yeah, but yeah, I yeah, wouldn't yeah, be yeah, able yeah, to. Yeah. And there is, there is, an, and obviously, you know, I could have just put it up and lied, but that's, we were so far down that journey. Sure. So for me, those little hacks behaviorally are huge. Yeah, that's cool. You? Yeah, I've got a bunch of them. Um, the one I want to talk about, it kind of relates to one of the things in the list, but it's really nice. Um, it's to do with steps versus lifts in buildings. So, so, you know, you see some buildings, particularly newer buildings I've seen, where the steps are more prominent. Mm-hmm. So the lifts are a little bit hidden. So if you walk into a foyer, particularly if, you know, these aren't like huge multi-story, but two, three-story buildings, um, you go in and the steps are now a prominent thing. And the lifts, you've got to kind of walk around a corner. And I actually saw these in some university buildings, which, which I like. But one thing that I saw in one of the buildings in my old work that they did was by the lifts, they'd put up signs that told you where the stairs were. So, you know, when you're pressing the button for the lift, there's actually a sign that says the steps are this way. Yeah. And then when you got to the steps, it said uh, at each um, flight how many calories you burned walking up that step. So if you walked up one floor, it said, well done, two calories burned. If you walked up another floor, it said, well done, you've burned four calories. And just by putting those little reminders in, um, I think it helped change people's behavior and, you know, do more step challenges. Yeah. So I liked that. That was a nice sort of I like that too. practical example in the workplace. <coughs> I like that too. Although I, I could also imagine myself getting to the third floor and going, oh, brilliant. I've done 10, I've done 10 flights of steps. <laughs> yeah. I'm off to have a burger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've earned it. Um, yeah. Cool. Right. Brilliant. Okay. So any final thoughts or top tips from you on this? Um, I guess maybe like, you know, I really like this stuff. I like thinking about it. And so maybe this is really a message from me more than anybody else as a top tip. But I think, it, you know, it's it's good to not overthink all of this. You know, it's possible, I think, to overthink the world around you and, and what your decisions are and your processes are. And, and, you know, am I using a heuristic approach to something or am I being rational or am I making a clean decision, whatever. Um, and I think it's great to know and to think about and to explore these things and, and what they mean around you. But I'd say, you know, just... Don't overthink it. Sometimes it's all right to go. And yes, the world's trying to do stuff to you or you're trying to do stuff to change your behaviors. But just kind of have fun along the way. Don't don't get too burdened with trying to um, make optimal choices and all that stuff. Because I think down that path lies a little bit of madness. Yes, I, I think that's a, probably a very fair assumption. Mine's, mine's slightly less important, but <laughs> okay. equally useful, I'm sure it's hopefully. Very, very important. Um, and I would just say... Um, if you try and be curious about data and if you try and be curious about what's going on in your workplace, quite often you will see things happening that you don't want to happen, right? And what I mean by that is, I don't know, you've got an application process in HR and you're getting 50% of people drop off before they complete their application. Yeah. If you are curious you will spot that and go, I wonder why that's happening. And you'll go and do the process and you'll go, oh, that's interesting. Ask a question. What would make, and then the question is, what would be something small and simple that might work with some of, some of what we've learned today and allow someone to maybe make a different choice and complete it. Yeah. And, and I just think there is an element and I know, I know it's not rocket science, any of it, 
But there is an element of being curious and rather than trying to make everything better, just finding the one or two things that could really make an impact. Yeah, work because, on those now. And... Because, and, and loads of the behavioural insight stuff has not worked. Yeah. Or not worked the scale they wanted yeah, it to. That and that's okay. So it's, it's, the point, I think, is about little and often. Yeah. And it's about... Uh, so we, we do a interview with a lady called Jane Gaza. Yeah, we do. And yeah. she talks about where... It's in one of the other podcasts. And she yeah, talks, it'll be out a couple yeah. of months after this. And she, oh yeah, so it's after this. So you've got this to come up. And she talks about, as a consultant, trying to encourage people to do little and often, little and often when they're improving their processes. Because it's much easier. Employee experience design and improvement. Yeah, but it works on anything, right? And I I think nudge is particularly true of that. Look for little things that are easy to change um, and and see if they make a difference. Yeah. Cool. Well, that sounds like a great tip. That's kind of us. It is kind of us. Kind of done. Are you all nudged up? Am I nudged up? No, I kind of want to go back and read the book again now because I feel like I've got extra thoughts. Yeah. That's uh, thing, but that's though. never a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, Maybe we'll do nudge 2.0 in a year's time. Maybe we should not pre-commit to that because it might happen if we do and we've probably got other stuff to talk about. Uh, if we were going to count every time you've suggested a new episode <laughs> as a pre-commitment, I would be signed up uh, to retirement. Oh, we'd be in such a mess. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, I guess it just... Quick reminder on how to get in touch again. Yeah, yeah, cool. So uh, there is a new website coming. Yeah. I can't say mine because James has done so much work oh, for no, it. It's a team one though, it's a team. It is, but James done all the work. <laughs> um, but it's amazing and it's coming and that's going to be at www.worldofwork.io. Yeah. Uh, and as always, please, please let us know what you think. Let us know of your favourite nudges. Let us yeah. know if you've been nudged recently. Yes, yes, yes. Wink, wink, nudge, um, nudge. And you can do that at the Wild Podcast. All right. Well, let's nudge What are we ourselves. talking about next time? Oh, that's a good question. That was a good nudge, maybe? Thanks. That was more <laughs> so, of a, a props. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know that I had a, a whatever an option to not do that. Um, so uh, next time, we're going to do something that I think is really interesting. We're going to take a lot of us thought about behavior change and things around nudge and, and reflect on how um, different parts of the world are trying to use this to influence predominantly consumer behaviors. So we've talked a lot about the fairly benevolent side of nudge and things like that. What we're going to do next time is talk a little bit about influencing for consumption fundamentally. Um, are we going to explore the Alka-Seltzer guys? We could explore the Alka-Seltzer Not them guys, specifically, but, 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 that, but that type of thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So how are people getting you to buy more, to pay more, to commit to purchasing, to engage more with products? You know, what is behavioral product design? All that kind of stuff. Um, that sounds great. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. So okay. looking forward to it. See you next time. All right. Take care, guys. Hi. Thanks for listening to this episode of the World of Work podcast. To learn more about what we do, please check out our website, www.worldofwork.io, where you can read some great articles, learn more about the seminars and courses that we deliver, or even support us if you wish through our Patreon page. That's www.worldofwork.io. Thank you.